Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. feels good in here. Now that he's come near, let us just give him all of our attention. Take your mind off of the troubles. Take your mind off of the things that are causing distraction in your life. Do your best by the help of the Spirit to to see Jesus. He's, he's worthy. He's worthy of all our attention. Amen. I just want to read a few quotes uh, that I have actually written in the front of my Bible before we uh, get started this morning. Um, we're going to continue in the vein that uh, Pastor Andrew has been on, uh, teaching on the gifts of the Spirit and why they're for today. And I'm going to take a little bit of a end around in the first part of the message, and then we'll circle back. Um, we're going to be talking about why we must stand on the scriptures. And that is why we can believe the gifts are for today. Because we completely believe in the sufficiency of scripture. And the scriptures explicitly tell us that they are for today. So just a few quotes that I have in the front of my Bible to remind me of just how beautiful this this word of God is. John Knox once said, the scriptures of God are my only foundation and substance in all matters of weight and importance. John Calvin said, scripture is like a pair of spectacles which dispels the darkness and gives us a clear view of God. George Whitfield, the famous evangelist during the first great awakening, he said, study the scriptures to know him more and more. For the more you know him, the more you will love him. Charles Spurgeon said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. Martin Luther said, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. (laughs) And lastly, Smith Wigglesworth, a healing evangelist, he said, Never compare this book with other books. Comparisons are dangerous. Never think or never say this book contains the word of God. It is the word of God. It is supernatural in origin, eternal in duration, inexpressible in value, infinite in scope, regenerative in power, infathomable in authority, or sorry, infallible in authority, universal in interest, personal in application, inspired in totality, 
read it through, write it down, pray it in, work it out, and then pass it on. <laughs> These are just some reminders I have in the front of my Bible when I, when I open it. What I'm getting into, <laughs> it's the Word of God. And I, I want to raise our level of understanding of just how much of a gift the Word of God is for us today and how sufficient it is for everything. And because that is the case, we must pursue the gifts of the Spirit because the Bible tells us to. <laughs> so we're going to join those two things and just come on this, this journey with me if you want to open up to Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll read into uh, chapter 4 a little bit. So a little background on this text. Uh, this is Paul's second epistle to Timothy. It was written sometime between 64 and 65 AD, and this is right around the time when Paul is about to die. This is, they, scholars believe it's between 64 and 65 that he's about to um, be martyred for the faith. And um, Paul wrote this epistle during, during his second imprisonment in Rome. So he's in prison while writing this letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, he is probably have somewhat, somewhat of the understanding that he's about to literally lose his head for the faith. And these are the words that he pens to his son. Uh, that you have to see that in that context, they have to be of utmost importance. And you know, you're thinking, like, what, if I only had one last thing to say to someone, what would I say? It would, it would be meaningful. And these are some of his last words um, in his life and certainly to his son, Timothy. So starting in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, he said, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be a, a complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away to listen, from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So these are some weighty words from the Apostle Paul to his son. He charges him, in prison, about to lose his head, preach the word in order to bring correction, rebuke and encourage his people in order to keep them in sound doctrine so that they don't wander away from listening to the truth and to prevent them from being carried off into myths. So this is what the word does. It keeps us grounded in the truth and the truth sets us free. So if we wander from it, we become bound. <laughs> and so my title for today's um, sermon it, I'll give some definitions here but it's going to be sola scriptura which it means uh, in Latin the scriptures alone according to the scriptures alone and my subtitle is against the myth of cessationism that according to the scriptures alone cessationism is a myth 
because the scriptures explicitly speak of the continuation of the gifts and I'll prove that it is until the return of the Lord through various texts <laughs> so it is an error to choose between the word and the spirit it is not a choice that God asks of us for we cannot know the scriptures without the spirit and we cannot know the spirit without the scriptures so the five solas of the Reformation um, they're in Latin uh, sola gratia, sola fide, sola script, uh, Christus, sola scriptura, sola deo, deo gloria. In English, they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. So these are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And very interestingly, um, you'll find that they wrote these specifically dealing about salvation. So they're saying, the script, according to the scriptures alone, we can have we could rest assured that salvation is only found by grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God but this is not saying that because we have the scriptures the spirit doesn't speak anymore this is specifically dealing with the fact that we can count on the scriptures to know how we must be saved that was their whole point in narrowing down and pulling down all the exterior um, processes and you know, you could pay for your salvation monetarily in, during that time. You could pay and get people out of hell. and all, It's all crazy stuff. It's just wild. But this is what they were fighting to do. So they weren't saying the scriptures are taking the place of the spirit. They were saying according to the scriptures, we know this is how we must be saved. So this is the context really in which they're, they're um, speaking here from the, the Reformation. And I'm really going to use the Reformation to prove the continuation of the gifts because many people that hold to a cessationist mindset that the gifts of the spirit ceased like healing speaking in tongues um, the, the various gifts of the spirit prophecy um, they would hold very dearly to the Protestant Reformation but it's very funny to look back through some Reformation history and find that a lot of these guys operated in the gifts <laughs> so I'm not sure what they were why they were going as far as they did. And some of the men did go as far as to say the gifts ceased that were part of the Reformation, but many of them didn't. And they operated knowingly in the gifts. So we'll run through it. I'm going to take a little bit of a teacher seat today. So bear with me. I think it's really important for us to, to understand this. Um, and I'm sure some, some preaching will come out. <laughs> um, so cessationism is a doctrine that the spiritual gifts, such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing ceased with the apostolic age. Also, that encounters with God, direct encounters with God, hearing his voice and experiencing the tangible power is not normative in the Christian life. And so this position is held in contrast with our position as a church. We are continuationists. We believe in the continuation of the gifts uh, until the present day and until the return of the Lord. So two things I want to show you. I want to show you the importance of why we must fully base our faith and life on the strong and only foundation which is the scriptures and secondly because that is true we have no option but to pursue the gifts because the scriptures command us to pursue them so the burden of proof lies in the camp of the cessationists to make a case for the ceasing of the gifts because the bible doesn't make that claim at anywhere or any time and it is contrary to the teaching of scripture and so it often leads in many ways to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said is unforgivable. When you attribute 
This is the context. Matthew 12, he says that whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, even in this age or the age to come. This is a big deal. Why is that? In the context, the Pharisees were saying that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of demons. So he was attributing the power of God to the power of the, the devil. <laughs> Everyone wonders, well, what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I mean, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I think that's it. <laughs> Calling what God's doing a work of the devil. And knowing, I, because they knew that this, that this man came from God. And then on top of it, to pull the people's attention away from Jesus. Oh, no, that's of the devil. But they were, it was undeniable. Nicodemus, when he met, met with Jesus, he said, we know, we know. He's one of the Pharisee leaders. We know you came from God, for no one can do the works that you do. So knowingly, knowing that God is moving in a place and then calling that the work of the devil is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's dangerous. And we need to do everything in our power to, to not be pulled into this. And it's not to say that some, to question, I still question things that happen in the move of God. Some of them are really weird. <laughs> and I'm still learning <laughs> what's going on. But the last thing I want to do is point it like, ah, that's the devil. We just got to be really slow to do that. And I think it's harder to do it and more direct to do it. You're not going to accidentally do it. You're going to knowingly do it. I rest my case there. <laughs> but um, really pretty crazy. Uh, John Calvin, one of the leaders of the Reformation, in his commentary on Matthew chapter 12, talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit he says, by detracting from the grace and power of God, we make a direct attack on the Spirit from whom they proceed and in whom they have revealed to us. Shall, shall any unbeliever curse God? It is as if a blind man were dashing himself against a wall. But no man curses the spirit who is not enlightened by him. The only reason why man hates God is because they know God exists. You don't hate something that doesn't exist. People don't believe in God. I don't believe in atheists. <laughs> Romans chapter 1 says that clearly from the dawn of creation... His eternal attributes and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. Therefore, man is without excuse. So every man that says, I don't believe in God, they, they do. <laughs> they live their entire life banking on the fact that he exists because unless he exists, this world could not exist as it does. I digress. Those only, this is a continuation of John Calvin, those are only the blasphemers against the Spirit who slander the gifts and the power contrary to the conviction of their own mind. This is someone that the, the cessationists look dearly up to is saying, when you slander the gifts and the power of God, you are blaspheming against the Spirit. It's explicit in his writings. So I'm in the middle of actually reading his uh, Institutes on Christian Religion, 800 pages. I can only read a sentence at a time because <laughs> it's so mind-blowing. Um, it's so funny. I, I read through some Reformation history. A lot of these men, there's history that's been hidden from us. They just kind of sweep it to the side. And we'll look at some of that later on, but it's really beautiful. These men were not as stoic and 
unemotional as as they're portrayed through their modern uh, uh, counterparts or the people that would subscribe to their teachings. So why must scripture be our plumb line? Second uh, Peter one sixteen. I'm going to summarize it for the sake of time uh, because I have a lot that I want to get through. But he's saying uh, in this text, I was an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Christ. I saw him. I saw his clothes transform. I heard God the Father audibly speak from heaven. I saw the cloud of witnesses appear on the mountain. And what I'm appealing to you today is according to the scriptures. He's taking what his eyewitness account was. He, if anyone had the validation to only rely on what they saw and what they had experienced, it was Peter. Peter had seen the Lord physically and the transfiguration and the audible voice from heaven. And he turns and he says, I have a more sure thing. It's the prophetic word. And what he's speaking about is the scriptures. I have a more sure thing than even my experience is the word of God. And that's why we must measure everything that we do in life and in the spirit by the word of God. Because if there was anyone that had a, a reason to appeal to their experience, it was Peter. But he said, well, I even have a more sure confirmation. It's written. It is written. So he saw the validity of the Old Testament scriptures. This is really, I guess, another kind of attack against the progressive Christian movement that's going on right now where we throw away the old testament and uh we don't need it and and jesus is basically just like a hippie <laughs> and uh he's just the super nice guy you know um <laughs> and uh and when that happens and we do that we destroy the witness of the scriptures we do not have a savior that can save for the new testament relies fully on the fulfillment of the old and if we throw the Old Testament away, we have no salvation. So Jesus appeals to his own authority by the scriptures. He continually quotes the scriptures. He quotes directly out of 14 of the Old Testament books, validating who he was. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He said, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And then a little bit further down in the section of John 5, he says, For if you have believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Right? So he's validating the Old Testament scriptures. And then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you is uh, Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in, to, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus directly links the testimony of the scriptures to the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus, Jesus, God in the flesh, is standing, resurrected from the dead with these men, and he's still appealing to the scriptures. He's still saying, look, 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 it's right here. He's right there. And he's like, look, 
This is, he, Jesus had a very high view of scripture because all scripture is God-breathed. The, Old Testament, the God revealed in the Old Testament is not different than the God revealed in the New Testament. It is the same God. Are we, are we more clearly evidenced by how Jesus is revealed in a person? Visibly in the New Testament? Yes, we have a more clear view. But it does not invalidate the old. And there's, there's many people that I used to really love to listen to a lot that have fallen into this error. Throw the, the Old Testament away. It's, 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 just, it's not good. <laughs> the New Testament is in the old concealed. The Old Testament is in the new revealed. Why do we need the standard written down? Because there are rebels. <laughs> Our culture is a perfect example of why God gave us an unchanging written word. Because the unchanging nature of his word is contingent on the unchanging nature of his person. His word doesn't change because he doesn't change. And in a day where everything's up for grabs, you know, just absurd things. If you feel that, you do that. If you think you're a horse, you just, you be a horse. No. The scriptures keep us straight keep us plumb line and in standard and in step with god and we must this is the only thing we can appeal to if this isn't true we have nothing guys we're wasting our time we need to just go home but this is true and i would lay my life down for this for this truth it's unchangeable and our whole society is built on this thing when they founded this country however they've been painting history recently John Jay, one of the first um, Supreme Court justices, he wrote the case law system for our government. He was reading word for word out of the Old Testament, taking, how do I deal with this situation? Oh, this is how you deal with it. The, this, was, this is what the standard was. And we live in a peaceful, we used to live in a really peaceful society, and it was because it was founded on the word of God. And it's, it's the end all be all. If I tell you something and it is contrary to this word, throw it away. But test everything that I tell you according to the scriptures. It is the only unchangeable thing that we have for us. If we were all left to our own devices and we had no objective standard to measure the things we were hearing from the Lord through, we would come up with the most wild things. And people do because they don't land on the scriptures. But we must hold the scriptures in a high view. And if we do we can clearly hear the voice of the Spirit because we could discern his voice from our voice and the voice of the enemy and others, other voices. This is how we decipher when God is really speaking to us. So multiple generations of abandoning God's righteous decree has brought lawlessness. So we need the law word of God. And in many, many ways, the, the word law is, is painted in a negative light in the New Testament. And that's true for its, um, to say that it's a, a binding thing and you need to fulfill the law in order to be saved. But the fact is, the law is beautiful. If you ever, if you ever read the Torah, it is it's beautiful. I used to painfully read through it until the Lord opened up my eyes to the scriptures. If you want to know how God feels about the law, read Psalm 119 the longest chapter in the book 
And, he's, and David is just marveling at the glory of the law of God. And it says in, I think, Psalm, or no, uh, Isaiah 42, that the coastlands, as the gospel is going preach, it is, they are waiting for the law. They're waiting for the law of God. And that in, in, even in the law, it says that men from other nations look at the law of God and say, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. This is so just. Is there a God that is as just as this? Is this really true? That men are waiting for the law of God. It's a lie that men want to be lawless um, in their own, like it's not actually the hunger of their heart. They're, they're breaking and they want, the, they want the, the, the boundaries. They really need the boundaries and they want somebody to tell them what to do. But they need someone to show them that what is true and what is false. And this is the hunger of man's heart. It's to be guided and led by the Spirit of God, according to the Word of God. So let's uh, keep rolling here. Yeah, so we got rebels out there. We got kooky people saying all types of stuff. Um, there are false prophets out there, but that only tells me that there are real prophets. You can't, if, if it was the fact that there was no more prophecy, he wouldn't say false prophets are coming. He would just say anyone that says they're prophesying is false. But the fact that he says there are false prophets means that there are real prophets. Scriptures are not an end to themselves, but they are the perfect and only clear window into the revelation of Jesus. People say, I don't need the Bible, I just need Jesus. And that sounds noble, but you can't give me objective truth about what Jesus is like unless you look in the scriptures. Yeah. So we'll just keep on, keep on rolling here, and we'll turn, we'll turn the corner here and go into why we need the, the gifts according to the, the, the scriptures. So the canon of scripture, the, the Genesis to Revelation, it gives us our plumb line. Everything to measure against. Is this, is this really what God is like? Is this really what God would say? And I'm not saying that what God says to you will be explicitly written in the text, because it would be really hard to do everything according to that. You wouldn't be able to go to Taco Bell and order something because <laughs> you'd have to use other language because Jesus speaks more than just what's written here, but nothing contrary to what's written here. Do you hear the difference there? Everything that he says must be weighed against this word. If it's consistent with his nature and his personality and, and what's been revealed here from Genesis to Revelation, then we know it's from him. If it is contrary then we throw it away. So, in a defense of the gifts, just because the canon of Scripture is closed, and every one of us on the leadership team would say, yes, it is, Genesis to Revelation, closed, no more adding to the Bible. No one's adding to the Bible. But just because the canon is closed doesn't mean God stops speaking. It just means that the standard has been completely set. It's sealed. And now everything else from God must be weighed and measured by the text of scriptures. Second Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. As I was gathering these texts together, I'm seeing so many times of like, why would God give us parameters for how to operate in the gifts or um, different instructions that would be handed down forever if he never intended us for, to operate in the gifts? Why would he have included it in his eternal word? It's like, oh yeah, this is how they used to do it. No, no, it's still uh, applicable to us today. 
So in First Thessalonians five nineteen through twenty one, it says, "Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good." So when we prophesy and we we say, "I, I felt the Lord is," I feel like the Lord is saying this. You look at it and you say, "Well, yeah, yeah, that's consistent with His Word." And if something a little bit out of left field, you might need to pray about it because it might still be consistent. You just might not know it at the time. Or it might be just so off that it's like, oh, no, that's not according to the word. Let it go. That's the exhortation of First Thessalonians. Test the prophecy. Hold fast to what is good. It, 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 this is how we're supposed to navigate these things. Not it's all bad, throw it all away. God still speaks, guys, because he's still alive. The, the scriptures say that the universe is held by the word of his power. It is sustained by the word of his power. When he stops speaking, if he was to stop speaking, let me say that. If he was to stop speaking, everything would cease to exist. The second person of the Trinity is named the word. He speaks. I thank God every day for my Bible. For it, it, for it is the only lens by which I can know him clearly. And then my experience of him is filtered through it. It was Jesus' defense against the devil's temptations. And Jesus had a canon too, the Old Testament scriptures, that he appealed to many times. Everyone in the Old Testament that prophesied inclusive of everyone that prophesied up to Jesus starting his ministry did not compromise the sufficiency of the scriptures or the rest of the Old Testament. If it was true that prophecy compromised the canon, then no one should ever have been prophesying at any point because there was written word of God ever since Moses. So he appeals to the scriptures, Jesus, as a testimony to himself, as being who he claimed to be. He said he only spoke what he heard the Father saying. This was not word for word out of the Old Testament. There were times where he quoted the Old Testament, but not everything that Jesus said was word for word in the Old Testament. But Jesus was not compromising the sufficiency of scripture. And John tells us that everything that Jesus did and taught, there's not enough books in the world to write it down. So everything that Jesus spoke, God made flesh. If there's anything that should be scripture, it's God's speech, right? But we don't have all of it. So Jesus spoke things directly from the Father that did not compromise the written word of God. And we are disciples of Jesus. He's the one that tells us how we are to operate in life and... and um, how we are to worship him. So this was not to say that every word coming out of Jesus' life was, uh, or out of his mouth was from the Old Testament, but it was the current speaking of God. They were consistent with God as revealed in the Hebrew text, but were not word for word from it. And Jesus said that we ought to walk as he walked. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we're upholding the commandments here in this scripture and the walk of Jesus. The way Jesus walked and the commandments set forth in the Old Testament. And his commandments out of his, out of his mouth. So what are some of the commands of Jesus? Well, Matthew 10 says that he commanded his disciples saying, Proclaim as you go. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. That's a command. Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers. Cast out demons. You have received without paying. Give without paying. That's a command of Jesus. Heal the sick. If we claim we know him, we will obey his commands to heal the sick. Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's an argument today that that command was only for the disciples. But the Great Commission invalidates that because that which was commanded to the disciples, the disciples were supposed to teach their disciples. And they were supposed to teach their disciples and their disciples and their disciples. This is the commission. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the duration of the gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 says, Pursue love, earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially that you may prophesy. That's a command. Pursue love and earnestly desire the gifts. But how? how? How are we supposed to do this? By the Holy Spirit living inside of us. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit makes his home inside of us. And the agency of all of the gifts is the Spirit. So that which we need for the demonstration after the proclamation or before the proclamation of the demonstration of the Spirit is all found within the person of the Holy Spirit. And because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, none of the gifts are without, are without uh, or out of reach. They're right here. Just because you're not operating in them doesn't mean that they're not there. Even the strongest cessationist, if he's a believer in Jesus Christ, he's got the gifts living inside of him. And a lot of times they prophesy without even realizing it. I've listened to multiple, I've listened to John MacArthur. I listened to John MacArthur in an interview with uh, Ben Shapiro. Uh, He was having a, a conversation with him. At the end, the dude just starts prophesying over Ben Shapiro. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? He hate. He says that the, the gifts are not for today, and he and he almost demonizes the people that believe that they are, and he starts prophesying over Ben Shapiro. He wouldn't say that that's what he did, but I'm listening to it, like he's prophesying right now. Glorious. So we just need to we just need to teach them. We just need to show them that this is it, the the scriptures are sufficient. We that we believe that wholeheartedly. We wouldn't compromise that in any way. But because the scriptures are sufficient, we must pursue the gifts. Because it's a command from the scriptures. So this is the point of the message. Healing, the gifts of the spirit, personal encounter, are all encouraged, even commanded, to be pursued by the scriptures. So in order for us to be sola scriptura, we must hold these truths as well. I'm going to try to run through this real quick. So divine healing. 
Not only do the scriptures explicitly teach divine healing is for today, it also teaches that death in all forms is God's enemy. Inclusive, but not limited to, physical sickness, mental illness, fear, demonic oppression, etc. Jesus taught us to pray for his will and kingdom to manifest on the earth as it is in heaven. This by nature of the statement is a declaration of war against the kingdom of darkness. And he is now teaching the church to manifest the kingdom life through the conquest of destroying God's enemies as listed above through our time on earth. He left the church empowered by the Holy Spirit in charge of what I like to call the great restoration or the colonization of earth with the life of heaven. The Bible says Jesus' reason for appearing was to destroy the works of the devil. And he did that through his death and resurrection, but also through his healing and deliverance ministry. And it continues through the church that follows his example. Every time we face sickness and disease and demonic oppression, we are facing an enemy and it should be treated as such. Not the person. That sickness, that demonic oppression, that is an enemy. And that is how we're to look at it. This is a mind-blowing quote, if you really think about it. Uh, T.L. Osborne, the healing evangelist earlier in the 1900s, I think. Late 1900s, maybe. Um, if sickness is the will of God, then every physician would be a lawbreaker. Every trained nurse, a defier of the Almighty. And every hospital, a house of rebellion instead of a house of mercy. If sickness is the will of God, for us to pursue healing in any form would be to go against the will of God. So every time we take a Tylenol because we have a headache, we are defying the will of God if, if sickness is the will of God. But it isn't the will of God, as clearly seen through the life of Christ. So point seven, actually, in our statement of faith, I've been really looking through our statement of faith uh, recently I'm putting together um, a little bit of a uh, what would be called a catechism uh, for our body is a, a question and answer learning through question and answer um, that's something that I do with my my son and he's starting to really catch on to it it's pretty awesome but I've been really studying our statement of faith because I'm basing the questions off of our statement of faith and um, you'll you'll enjoy it uh, one of the questions I asked my son is who made you and he says God made me it's very simple this is a scriptural truth, and uh, we'll learn together and, and participate with our families in continuing to be driven into the truth of God um, by that. But I was studying the, our statement of faith, and it says, our, our point seven says, healing of the sick is illustrated in the life and ministry of Jesus and included in the commission of Jesus and to his disciples. It is given as a sign, which is to follow believers. The victorious redemption, uh, redemptive work of Christ on the cross provides freedom from the power of the enemy inclusive of sin, lies, sickness, and torment. So we believe that healing was a part of Christ's atonement. And the Lord uh, said to me one morning that tolerance of death is a hindrance to breakthrough. Just tolerating death. Just being like, oh, yeah, you know, death is just a friend that brings me to God. Nope, death is God's enemy. And tolerance of death in any form that we've talked about earlier is an enemy to the people of God and to God himself. 
So if we could just have fun for, for one moment. It's the <laughs> just, for, just for a moment. Detour. Um, the scripture that says it is appointed one, once a man to die, then comes the judgment. Now that is true in, in most cases. But you're going to have to break that news to Enoch. Because he didn't die. He walked with God and then he was no more. And you're also having to tell that to Elijah. Because Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. He did not die. It seems that God takes some of his closest friends beyond the death to not have to taste it. Jesus raised people from the dead. They died twice. <laughs> and everyone that walked out of the grave when Jesus, was it when he died? When he gave up his breath the, the graves broke open and it says 500 of the saints walked out of their grave in the scriptures we don't know if they died again <laughs> death is God's enemy and when he set forth the most conquering uh, event in history the cross death let go of the saints in the city <laughs> death is God's enemy so that's why we heal the sick. The voice of God. It is necessary for salvation. <laughs> you say God doesn't speak today. John says, or Jesus is speaking in John, and he says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. It doesn't say they read my voice. It says they hear my voice. So every person that is a follower of Christ would have to have, at one point, heard the voice of God. Now, it's not always intelligible. Like, I could hear words audibly from heaven. That happens sometimes. Not to me. But that does happen. But the fact is that the voice of God came to each one of us that are saved. And we heard his voice. So if you follow Christ, you've heard his voice. And you discerned it to follow him. So he gives us the agency to be able to follow him in that. Um, yeah, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When the Spirit comes, Jesus said, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us the things that are to come. That, that scripture was not just for the disciples. That when the Holy Spirit comes, you twelve will be able to hear things about what's to come. It was to anyone that would have the Holy Spirit. Do we still believe that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth? Yes. Yeah. Well, because he's still speaking. He's still speaking to us. Direct encounter. Uh, I believe that ex the, the scriptures explicitly teach that direct experiential contact with God is not only possible but necessary for genuine relationship with Jesus. John 17, 3. Eternal life is this, that you know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That know there is experiential. It's not this, that you know about him, that you know him personally in an, in an intimate, intimate, intimate way. So let me just skip through here real quick. Man, I have so much. Dina, oh, you prophesied that I'd uh, start writing books, and I, I wrote a book. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so we believe in the continuation of the gifts. The scripture teaches that the gifts of Christ and the gifts of the Spirit are in full operation today and will continue until the return of Christ. Because these gifts are the very means of maturing the church and transforming the world until Jesus returns. If they go away, 
we don't have the um, the way that Jesus designed for the church to be matured, if we throw that away, our church, the church cannot mature. And we can't be ready for his return. And we can't put the enemies of God under Christ's feet without these gifts. And please hear me. I'm not saying that people that don't believe the gifts are for today are not Christians. I actually spend most of my time listening to men that would probably say that the gifts aren't for today. They teach the Bible really well. <laughs> but, but what we have to say, and, and it's what you, I think you iterated a, a few weeks ago, is that in the fear of being deceived, these men have been deceived. In the fear of being deceived that the gifts might not be for today, they have ran from the gifts and are now deceived by not going after the gifts because they are for us. And so what is this power for and how long does the church have it? Well, Jesus said you will receive power to be his witnesses. Are we still his witnesses? Then we still need his power. And until the mission is completed, we will need this. And I have some thoughts on that and we'll get on that maybe another day. <laughs> Ephesians 4, 1 through 14, it speaks of the, um, he's given some apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints um, and for the, the work of the ministry. Let me turn there real quick so that you can put some eyes on it. Um, Ephesians 4. I know I'm getting close to time here. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 11. And he says, And he gave some... And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until. You see that word there? Until. Until we all attain the unity of the faith. Who is that speaking of? All believers are united in what they believe in the faith. It's going to take a little while. <laughs> And of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. Is the church as mature as the fullness of the stature of Christ? No. So we still need apostles. And we still need prophets. And we still need evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Because they are the very means by which we mature and grow into all that God's created us to be. And they keep us from wandering off into myths and being carried about by every wind of doctrine. But they keep us in the truth. So that's the gifts of Christ. The gifts of the Spirit, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, uh, gift of faith, gift of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpreting of tongues. These are the very agency by which the, the people of God are to further the gospel message. We proclaim the message as true, and the message is validated by the signs that follow or the, the signs that proceed. Sometimes a healing will take place, and then some will be open to hear the gospel. And sometimes people hear the gospel, and then we pray for them and they receive healing, or we prophesy over them. They are to be accompanying the gospel. It's inseparable. Throughout the entire New Testament, there was never a time where the word and the uh, demonstration of the Spirit were not together. Andrew's done an amazing job of showing us that this is the case. Um, 
Paul writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to them so that they are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As you await the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how long are the gifts still? Until Jesus comes back. Um, yes. Let's, let's run a little bit uh, past some of this stuff too. Um, so really, really beautifully, as I was studying some Reformation history, um, men in the 14th century, 15th century, 16th century, that would be considered a part of this lineage of those that would really characterize themselves as cessationists, were knowingly prophesying. They would say, the Lord has given to me by divine revelation such and such, such and such. And these were the same men that were fighting for the sufficiency of Scripture. So th these things are not opposed to each other. They run together. One man, John Huss, as he was being burned at the stake for coming against the Catholic Church of the day, he's being burned alive. And he says, you are going to burn a goose, but in a hundred years you will have a swan, which we will neither no roast nor boil. He was playing on his last name, Huss, and his language means goose. So he, he was saying, you'll burn this goose, but in a hundred years there'll be a swan that you won't be able to roast nor boil. That was a prophetic word from being, while being burned alive. Almost exactly a hundred years later, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door. Almost to the day. So that happened in 1415. Martin Luther did what he did in 1517. And the point could be argued that exactly a hundred years, Martin Luther began his processing of the why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John Knox, the, the leader of the, the Scottish Protestant Reformation, he said, God hath revealed unto me secrets unknown to the world, and also he has made my tongue a trumpet to forewarn realms and nations. <laughs> and the things that he said came to pass. George uh, Gillespie, one of the people that met for the Westminster Assembly to write the Westminster uh, confession of faith he said and now having the occasion i must say it to the glory of god there were in the church of scotland both in the time of the first reformation and after the reformation such extraordinary men that were more than ordinary pastors and teachers even holy prophets receiving extraordinary revelations from god and foretelling diverse and strange and remarkable things which did accordingly come to pass punctually and to great admiration of all who knew the particulars. So he's saying, this is in 1630-whatever, right? After the Protestant Reformation. He's saying there were men. They were more than men. They were more than pastors. They were prophets of God. And the things they said, they came to pass punctually as they were carried by the Spirit. And these are all men that the cessationists looked up, look up to in high esteem. But for some reason, this is missing from most of their history of the church. Same thing with uh, Samuel Rutherford. He was foretelling about the same things um, of these things that came to pass. Um, and yeah, and even, even more recently, uh, Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife, was considered a mystic by her experiences that she had with, from, with God. That she was having such intense experiences with God that people looked at her and said, oh yeah, that's characteristic of, you remember Teresa of Avila? St. Teresa of Avila back in the day? Oh yeah, her experiences are similar to what Sarah Edwards had. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote, 
the heart was swallowed up, speaking of his wife, the heart was swallowed up in a kind of glow of Christ's love coming down as a constant stream of sweet light. At the same time, the soul all flowing out in love to him so that there would seem to be a constant flowing and reflowing from the heart to heart. The soul dwelt on high, was lost in God, and seemed almost to leave the body. This is Jonathan Edwards, the, the, the leader of the first week, Great Awakening. He's speaking of his wife, having these experiences with God. Uh, another man that is, is dearly beloved by the cessationist camp. And what we need to do is we need to come back to the scriptures. And we need to read them and, and see them not as things that are limiting experience or constraining experience, but giving permission to experience God. Because you read from Genesis to Revelation, God is speaking. He's showing up. He's on the scene. He's pulling prophets up by their hair into the heavens. He's, he's, he's speaking through a donkey. He's do- this is what God does, and he has not changed. This is what he does, and this is our God. And so he still speaks, and he speaks to his people, and his people can experience him because he's still alive and he's here and we, when we feel him in worship and we, and we go up in worship and we, and we feel him come into this tent this is not some, some foreign thing this is the God of the universe is coming to meet with us and we, he can be experientially known because he's not just a thought or a concept he's a person that can be known and this is his desire from beginning from the beginning he, he started he, he built a garden <laughs> he planted a garden eastward in Eden so that he might walk in the cool of the day with man and his desire throughout you see throughout the scriptures he's constantly trying to break in and meet with man and man doesn't want him but God's desire is to meet with man and so if we're going to be a people and say God we want you we want you to come here we want you to be here with us he will respond to that cry because it's more of a desire in his heart than it is in our heart. So we must pursue the Lord. We must pursue his gifts because the scriptures command us to. And if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, we must pursue the gifts. Amen?